He's provided good family sustaining wages with good benefits. And a lot of people put the kids through college, bought a home, paid it off. And during the 60s through the 80s, it was one of the highest paying jobs in the regions where these plants are located. Welcome to the Political Economy Project with the goal of creating universal prosperity for today and future generations. My name is Evan Papp and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today I'm speaking with Jim Key, who is the president of the United Steel Workers Atomic Energy Workers Council. Jim, thanks so much for your time. So could you begin by introducing yourself? Yeah, uh, as you said, I'm Jim King. I'm president of the United Steel Workers Atomic Energy Council. The council itself covers nine uh, Department of Energy environmental management sites across the nation. These include the Hanford, Washington, Carlsbad, New Mexico, Idaho Falls, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Paducah, Kentucky, Portsmouth, Ohio, a Bettis Lab in Pittsburgh, and also uh, Navy Nuclear Fuels in Irwin, Tennessee. Wow. So how did you get involved with unions yourself? Is your, Are you coming from a family of union workers? And uh, what, what's yeah, your experience? A, yeah. Yeah, I'm a third generation union member. And my father was a union, local union president with operating engineers at a power plant, coal-fired power plant that supplies plant uh, power, supplied power, power to the Paducah gaseous diffusion plant, which I began working there when I was 19 years of age. I've got 48 years at the gaseous diffusion project in Paducah. Uh, through my involvement of the local union there, uh, became the first environmental safety and health union rep at Paducah in 1989 when the Department of Energy encouraged their contractors uh, to include the union in the safety and health uh, department and program at these sites. So it, it sounds like a lot of the work that you're doing with the Atomic Energy Council, Workers Council, is to just make sure that the um, employees are are protected. Is that is yeah, that one of the main goals? Work, yeah. Yeah, to have a have a safe work environment for you to leave home that afternoon, the same way that you arrived that morning. Of course, you have a, a latency period on a lot of these exposures to different isotopes and even asbestos you know when these plants were built back in the late 40s because of the cold war asbestos was used throughout every facility that was built and then you have beryllium which is a product that was used to harden metal and uh, in these facilities so these facilities also at that time were performing work for other programs, being at Paducah, we made nose cones for NASA and for the U.S. Army and different contracts for specialized equipment. Uh, that equipment was made at Paducah and other sites for the military use. And, and so it, it covers a broad array 
of now including not only radiological exposure and uh, subsequent hazards and health impairments, but also we've added a subpart to the legislation for chemical exposure also. Because a lot of the chemicals that we use uh, late 40s through up until the early to mid 1990s, uh, no one knew the health effects of a lot of these chemicals. You know, the uh, atomic age was a relatively new industry when you look at steel and coal, because we look back only in 1952 did, did we have the ability as a nation to enrich uh, uranium, uh, specifically part of the Cold War and production of weapons, but also then into nuclear reactors, fuel for those. I see energy in everything that we do, and energy is life, and we need an abundant amount of energy to prevent poverty. And I've, I've lived in Africa where there's just cook stoves, no electricity, and so I've, I've been very aware of how fortunate I am and the, uh, us Americans are having this incredible energy system, very productive, and having workers that can actually run this system. And I feel the last 20, 30 years, we've been exporting, we, we've moved the so-called dirty jobs of mining and energy production abroad. And then we, to places where we can outsource the pollution and we deindustrialize our country, and then we import the finished products. Yet to actually create surplus value, we need to create the products here and we need a manufacturing base, an industrial base, and we need an energy base. And nuclear has its issues, but at the same time, it has the, the greatest density of energy source compared to anything. And when you start looking at wind and solar, it's so diffuse, it's intermittent. You can't really have an industrial base of manufacturing based on wind and solar. And it's gonna need to be coal, it's gonna need to be hydro, it's gonna need to be nuclear. Could you just talk a little bit about what it means to, to be working in these industries that are so necessary, yet at the same time, uh, some people have demonized them as like dirty jobs and things like that. What I would like to see is high paid union jobs, high skilled labor jobs in the US, but with all the environmental and worker protections, instead of just exporting it all to other countries that don't have these protections and importing it you know, with, with the race to the bottom. So I, I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I totally agree with your belief and position on that. You know, there is our nation's nuclear needs. There is a mix, hydro, wind, solar, coal fire even, if they will, you know, put in appropriate scrubbers to lower the emissions that uh, go into our air. And I, too, do not think as a nation that we should ever have positioned ourselves to rely on a no another foreign government to supply our energy needs. Part of the problem and part as we look at it now, we had an agreement with Russia to take the highly enriched uranium and down blend it where we would take away atomic weapons from both sides and have peaceful useful uses for the down-blended uranium, such as the fuel for nuclear reactors. Uh, 
you have to understand in mining of from mining uranium all the way up to a finished product, be it for a nuclear reactor, be it for medical isotopes, whatever, it has a stamp contained within a product itself where we know where it was dug up from, how it was created, and we know it's American. Uh, part of the problem of downgrading the, the nuclear weapons with Russia, that agreement, uh, is the fact that pro proliferation can come into play, especially from Russia's side, though during this program, all of the finished down blend was sent back to the U.S. But now, uh, we, we don't have the capability currently that we once had to even enrich uranium. We have a ACP project at Portsmouth, Ohio. ACP, could you just, uh, what, what is that acronym? Yeah, American, American Centrifuge Project. Uh, it takes uh, centrifuges that uh, separate the isotopes uh, for the enriched stream and for the depleted stream. The gaseous diffusion project, you know, the scientists and engineers that built this, it was a great system. It worked well. It was very energy intensive. So, you know, you've got a profit margin that doesn't pay off when you have a facility like in Paducah that during the day is using as much electricity as the city of Memphis, Tennessee, and St. Louis combined. And so they look, start looking at different ways for enrichment. A laser enrichment has been designed, has been talked about, has not been constructed yet. But the centrifuge ACP project, American Centrifuge Project at Portsmouth, Ohio, currently holds our best effort for enrichment of uh, nuclear material. We have a foreign uh, enrichment facility uh, out west that we as a nation would not even send our depleted uranium to because of the proliferation concern and because it's not a U.S. owned and contractor operated facility. We as a nation at the Three Mile Island, I guess the fear across the nation, we need a re-education of the population of people for them to understand that we now have new nuclear small modular reactors, SMRs, that are on the drawing board. Some of them have been tested. A new one with uh, thorium as a, as a fuel is to be tested in Idaho. Bill Gates even has a conceptual design of TerraPyre, which uses a sodium-based cooling where you don't have a three-mile island possibility if you were to lose water because uh, it doesn't require the water. These, these new SMRs uh, can be as small as the garage or someone's home, but yet they can put two, three, however many together for the total output that is needed. Our current electrical infrastructure in the United States 
the wind, solar, and coal cannot supply our needs, as evident this summer in Texas and, and last winter in Texas and other places, uh, brownouts and the loss of electricity to people's homes. So California, <laughs> California is all like, yeah, brown, yeah. and that's a, a wind solar uh, policy, just like we're seeing in Germany, and they're paying the price right now. Right. You know, as a result of Fukushima uh, and the tsunami, they shut down, Japan shut down all of their nuclear reactors. Germany did also, which now I don't know what they as a nation are going to do to supply people with power. Uh, but you've got to have nuclear in the mix. And the nuclear, as the new designs are, are shut down themselves. Some of these small modular reactors, you can even build them in the ground with containment. And so a three-mile island are released from a nuclear facility out into a community where these new ones, uh, the small modular reactors, you know, people need to understand that won't happen again. Yeah. You know, it it will automatically shut down and self-contain the components that it has. But our government is going to have to step up and supply the funding and the push as they did in the late 40s with the gases diffusion plants and the production of the Cold War missiles and bombs that were used in Japan and set us up as a nation. At one time, the United States had 80% of the contracts worldwide for enriched uranium. Yeah, those are and export jobs. Like, those are jobs that we could, through our export uh, commercial ability, can actually lead to huge profits. And I, I think, um, I believe the Paducah plant was taken, it was three gigawatts of electricity coming from the Tennessee Valley Authority uh, to help with the gaseous diffusion for the reprocessing. So we also need, um, we need more energy. And the thing is nuclear supplies 20% of the US power, I believe. And it's almost 50% of the clean energy of uh, the, you know, carbon free. But even if you're not thinking about carbon, the entire waste stream of nuclear is contained in the at the plant unlike coal unlike wind and solar and uh and you you provide if if you're able to do the full national security aspect of being energy secure you need the the mining the reprocessing of the fuel and then you need the actual be able to build these generation plants and then once you get good at them you can export them and that's what china's planning is already starting to do you can see it with south korea and What's really bothersome, too, is that between 1977 and 2005, government policy didn't even allow, the U.S. government policy did not allow reprocessing of used fuel for commercial reactors. So currently, all, all, almost all our uranium used in the U.S. commercial reactors is imported. And, um, and as you were saying, you know, we need to get that back. Well, yeah, I mean, they, these sites across the nation, they have spent nuclear fuel that is sitting there and being stored. Uh, in the Carter, during the Carter administration, there was a uh, program where we would build a reprocessing facility, much like the one at The Hague. And there they take all of their waste, they feed it into this reactor processing system. 95% of it is converted to electricity 
The other 5% is vitrified in glass and then stored in glass containers uh, in the ground where it doesn't pose a hazard. Yeah. And, so, and that, yeah, that, because, that's, yeah, please. Because of proliferation concerns, the Carter administration said we're not going to build it. We could have the one at the Hague employed 6,000 people and, you know, converts all of that waste into usable energy. And so, uh, yeah, we've got a lot of education to do to people in our nation and to the legislatures to say, look, we can't get, especially when you're talking EV, electrical vehicles, replacing, you know, the gas or carbon uh, producing vehicles that you and I drive every day. Uh, we can't get to that point because currently we can't supply our uh, electrical demand that people need in their homes today. Yeah. Yeah. Let alone so, convert to electrical vehicle, you know, society. Yeah. And, and just uh, some side notes for the audience too. A lot of the so-called uranium waste from a pressurized light water reactor there's still 95% of fissionable fissionable material in it and if you put it into a breeder reactor it can actually use that uh for for additional fuel and we're seeing it um we're seeing some different types of um nuclear reactors like the Candu reactor in Canada as well that is very effective and even the to to go back to 3 mile island even though that one reactor went down they kept the other two going on and there wasn't a single death and when you think about you know just uh, the oil platform uh, in in the Gulf, you know that kills you know ten workers every decade or so when it blows up. I mean, we didn't shut down our entire offshore drilling because of that. No, you just need to add additional safety uh, measures and hold the the leaders accountable that may maybe we're cutting corners. So, I for the audience as a union worker in these plants. Could you talk a bit about just whether they were high, like well-paid with pensions, like that they were the workers taking care of at least because they're union unionized and have you seen non-union plants that maybe not taking but care of the workers? They were, uh, they certainly were. The, these provided good family sustaining wages with good benefits. And, uh, you know, a lot of people put their kids through college, bought a home, paid it off and, at that, during the 60s through the 80s, it was one of the high, highest paying uh, jobs in the regions where these plants are located. And so when you shut one of those down, you know, that depresses not only the immediate economy, the tax base, and everything else, but that wage rate turns over six times within a local community. And you can't go out on the street today and find a job available that can provide that type of wages and benefits to workers. So you also have some international experience. I believe you went to Turkey in 2019 at a conference of, for nuclear workers building union power. What was that experience like and uh, what were some of the other people um, doing in these other countries? Yeah, so this nuclear summit in Turkey was hosted by a Turkish nuclear uh, 
labor organization because Turkey had just passed legislation and received funding to build their first nuclear reactor. And so the union workers were just hungry for all information that they could get uh, across the globe. So I represent the United States and the United Steelworkers at that summit. We had Belgium, Japan, China, uh, Ukraine, uh, and other labor organizations there sharing all of the knowledge of the years that we have been operating with the Turks. So, uh, and I just saw the other day, they're now have approved for an additional reactor that they're going to start building. So, uh, you know, uh, what used to be thought of as a third world country, now, you know, getting their energy needs in order and is going to be equal to, to other nations uh, as far as the power supply of nuclear to, to their processes and to their nation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we had a, a more enlightened foreign policy, we would be promoting union jobs and promoting trade with nuclear energy and with our own exports and competing against China and South Korea. And, and at the same time, once you have a relationship with a country, with the fuel sources, you can lock in these long-term relationships, you know, 25, 50 years yeah. with some of these plants because yeah. you're creating the custom fuel that um, you're building for the, the reactor that you, you've constructed. And so it, it seems like it, it's just so obvious what we need to be doing. Um, I so, totally agree. Yes. So, so in, in closing, uh, what, is, what do you see as the future of union nuclear energy in America, and what would you like it to be? Well, unfortunately, what I see as the future, unless we get the general public educated and the legislators to realize that if I have a brownout or an energy loss, in the state of Texas, I don't fly my family to Cancun uh, to survive that. But yeah, we've got to get, and we've got to get the United States to start funding and owning this rebirth, as I will put it, of this new nuclear age of these small modular reactors. Then they instruct the contractors who they vet uh, how to run these and supply exactly what we need. You know, we're 20 years behind the ball right now and playing catch up. But, you know, you take in the state of Georgia, you've got Vogel there who have two operating reactors now and is in the process of building a third one. My daughter lives outside of Atlanta in a three-story home and her energy Bill, during the summer months, is a third of what mine is of a single family rent style home. I mean, it's evident the, the payback to, you know, the community and, and to those that are being supplied power at a reduced cost. Who doesn't want cheaper electricity? Yeah. And then that so, goes into every other industry as well. So it can create more jobs and make us more competitive. Correct. 
So uh, Jim Key, uh, president of the United Steel Workers, Atomic Energy Workers Council. We can also get the United Steel Workers to build the steel for these plants as well. And I really right. want to thank you for your time and, and everything you're doing. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to, to participate in your podcast. Thank you.